Good evening, we'd like to welcome audiences to this special edition episode of Alki, the gamified music improvisation podcast recorded right here in Shrewsbury, UK. My name's Benedict, and joining me as always is the prolific multi-instrumentalist and music producer, Andy Lowe. Hello, yes, joining you via telephone, that is, we're not in the same room. That's right. The most special thing about this episode is that we won't be playing any music and instead we'll be taking the opportunity to explain what the show is and talking about ourselves a bit and how we met and how this unusual and unique podcast started. But thanks to the novel coronavirus at the height of lockdown, Andy and I are recording the episode from the comfort of our own homes. I'm just waving to you there, Andy. Can you see that? No. No, because we're many miles apart. Um, (laughs) Andy, are you aware that we've been recording episodes for almost a year now? Really? No. I mean, I maybe could have guessed that, but I didn't know we're coming up to a year of Alki. Are we going to celebrate? Well, I guess guess this this is the height of our celebration. So let's proceed with the About Us episode. Okay, Andy Lowe, do you remember how we met? Yeah, I do. I remember it quite vividly, actually. I remember being at a pub. It was the Hop and Friar in <laughs> yep. Shrewsbury Town Centre, uh, where we were both at an open mic night. And I think I played a couple of songs. I've got a feeling you were playing your violin, or you'd brought your violin there. Is that right? I didn't bring my violin that night, but there was some girl there who had a violin, and I think I was playing on hers. So oh, you might have seen right. me with a violin. Yes, I remember you playing a violin. Okay, but it wasn't yours. Did you <laughs> did you actually perform anything at the open mic night? No, not on not kind of on stage in front of the audience. I did kind of just to the side, but um Right. <laughs> I th- I think I'd probably played one of my you know songs that I was bringing out around the pubs at the time like my delete where applicable song or the I was born in Shrewsbury song. Yes. No, I remember watching you performing these songs and I thought, you know, there's something to this guy. I remember I met both you and Craig Bradbury on the same night. So that was a fortuitous open mic night to come to. Wow. And in fact, really I'd was. only Yeah, I'd only been living in Shrewsbury for about 2 weeks as well. Yep, yeah, I was fresh from having lived in South Korea for 5 years and straight back to Shrewsbury. And yeah, obviously the first thing you do when you go to a new town is you go to the open mic nights. You go and you try and get the measure of the place by trying to find some musicians and checking out the music scene. And that was that was how long ago? Ten years ago? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. And I remember our conversation where you said you were looking for musicians to jam with what you were interested <laughs> in, you know, all those years ago. You're all about jamming. And I was like, yeah, I'd be up for that. We should do that. And then what I've had to live with ever since is the, the constant comparison between the, the very uh, small parochial music scene that exists in Shrewsbury and the thriving one of Seoul in South Korea. And it, it just sounded like, well, why didn't you tell us about some of the experiences you had in the Seoul oh music scene? Because I think that's obviously had a huge influence on you. Yes. Wow. Well, Seoul is incredible. It's enormous. It was at one point the city with the third highest population in the world. You can go out pretty much any night of the week and you'll always be able to find some kind of live performance going on. You'll probably, if you're a performer yourself, be able to find an audience who will watch you. 
and there's every kind of music you can imagine not so heavy they they don't go in for the kind of the um is it more uh, poppy um yeah more poppy and uh, but plenty of kind of obscure art music avant-garde stuff as well they have um something uh popra which i've never heard that phrase before but that's something <laughs> Me neither. That, that yep that got thrown around a lot but i've heard um, of hip hopera <laughs> yes um so i lived in south korea teaching english as a foreign language for five years in central seoul with its incredible music scene and then i moved to shrewsbury <sighs> the most culturally deprived artistically barren soulless lifeless I'd even go so far as to say miserable location on the planet. If Shrewsbury has a music scene, I've yet to find it. Wow. Well, that's just about the most pessimistic summary I think I've ever I've ever experienced. I don't I've... think I can be damning enough. <laughs> wow. Whereas I, on the other hand, would say it is, yes, quaint and rustic, <laughs> And not perhaps as cutting edge as somewhere like Seoul, <laughs> but um, still in its own unique way, uh, a gem of local creativity. Uh, yep, that's um, fair. I'm biased because I was born in Shrewsbury and I, I grew up here and I've always lived here and always loved this town. I haven't felt compelled to leave here yet. Um Whereas you're more of a newcomer, having only lived here a decade or so. <laughs> yes, I, of course, come from Lancaster up north, where I stayed until university age and then sought pastures anew. Um, believe it or not, it was actually the, the movie School of Rock that was a part inspiration for me to go off and become a teacher. Um, you wanted to be just like Jack Black in that movie. I wanted to be exactly like Jack Black and... Um, um, some aspects of that film are relatively accurate. Um, many which, aren't. Which you, which ones are accurate? Um, I'd say the close bond that you get with your students is well portrayed in that film. You know, okay. you get the the impression that they all kind of genuinely care about each other. Uh, yeah, obviously you couldn't get away with doing that for very long. You'd be found out really quickly. But. Um, Yep. So yep. obviously, after living in Korea, I came back and got a job teaching at Telford College of Art and Technology, teaching maths and English. I did that for four years. So um, music for you, would you say it's always been a hobby? Was there a time in your life when you discovered music or you discovered improvisation? Wow. Where can I begin? Music does something to me. I just can't explain it. It, it enables me to say things that I can't say in real life. It enables me to express myself in ways that I can't normally. Uh, when I see a piano keyboard with its configuration of notes, I know what I can make it do and I know how I can use it to... It's so difficult to explain. I've never it's really, really hard tried to... to into words, isn't it? I've never tried to put these things into words before. Music, the ability to create music imbues one with power. Mm -hmm. And I just love it. And I just love reveling in it and playing it. And um, this might be a good opportunity to talk about our musical histories. So I don't know whether you'd like to go first, Andy. Could you summarise what you've done in your 
your musical life? Well, there have been ups and downs. I mean, I started out playing the violin and I wouldn't go so far as to say it was disastrous. I mean, I spent a good number of years and got to grade six, but I can't say I really relished it. And my abiding memories are sort of the uh, unfortunate things that befell my violin at important concerts, like the, the time we played in Shrewsbury Abbey and I dropped my bow down a grate. They had this... <laughs> like underfloor heating in the abbey. So they had these quite um, large, heavy grates um, with that you could see down to the pipes underneath. And I was, I must have been bored and it was the rehearsal. It was, you know, on the afternoon of the big concert oh, and I was no. just putting my violin bow down the grate. Just, I think I was just, just seeing how far I could get it. And then obviously the inevitable happened and I dropped it. <laughs> and then I was, I think I had to put my hand up right, sitting right at the back of the orchestra and be like, excuse me, can someone help me get my goat, my, my bow back? Another time, again, on the day of a concert, I just dropped my violin on, on the floor and it, it, the bridge snapped off and yeah, they had I've to find me a new one. Yeah. Um, so I, I think I was relieved when I discovered other instruments. I had uh, saxophone lessons as well. And I loved that. I loved the, I mean, it just felt like I had more freedom. That's where I was. I started learning about improvisation, really, was ah. when I when I played the saxophone I wasn't really listening to much jazz um at the time but I just I enjoyed playing it I enjoyed getting to make up music as I went along and I, I felt there was something much more freeing about that than um doing whatever I was doing on the violin I still get the violin out every now and then and, and play some jigs and and stuff like that and I and I have violin students actually <laughs> in fact I'm a bit worried if they if they hear this that they'll think they'll find you out. Um, exactly, I'll be found out as a a violin dropper and a bow loser. <laughs> <laughs> so that that was sort of my musical beginnings. Uh, what was it like for you? Well, I don't know if you realise this, Andy. I actually started out on the guitar. I learnt the guitar no for years. Yeah, I had guitar lessons, oh. and um, that kind of led me into playing heavy metal and kind of um, open tuning and palm muting and those kind of things. You were doing all and that before you played the piano? No. Um, I remember, I can't remember where it was. There was some place where I used to go, maybe it was a community hall or something that I, for some reason, frequented. And okay. there was a, a piano there. And from a very early age, maybe at the age of like five or so, I remember going on this piano and playing every note chromatically from the lowest note to the highest note huh. and then going up and down playing every note and just finding it fascinating and just kind of just kind of enjoying the resonances that you get and the kind of the dissonances of two notes next to each other yeah and um from a very early age but then I never really touched the piano again for years even though mm, okay. I did, my, I, we, we had a kind of an electric organ, an electric wind-powered organ in wind the house. Wind-powered? You mean a pedal well, one? No, um, it was electric, but it you turn it on and the fans would go... So it's very noisy. But uh, And then you play anything and then there's a slight bit of delay before it plays any notes because it's, so it's kind of like a wind-powered organ. It was wind, like the size wind, of a regular keyboard. So ele electrically powered, but 
You've, I don't understand. Fan. Uh, so it so had like bellows inside. or fans or something inside. Yeah, but uh, like a <laughs> but, like a harmonica, yeah. like like a mouth organ. Yeah, maybe more of, like a harmonica. Yeah, not it, like instead an of organ. lungs, it's a, there's some kind of fan going. The, I could I could probably Google it and find out exactly what it was. But yeah, something like that. And um, we used to have one of those, and I never. Um, at that point, I didn't know how to play the keyboard or the piano or anything, so I was just kind of making notes, making noises. So then we moved house and we came to a place which had an actual piano, and uh, me and my sister both got piano lessons, and she hated it, and I loved it, and I carried on learning. And um, I had a piano teacher called Shelley Duncan, who I'll always remember, who taught me the blues. He taught me 12-bar blues. And that's probably the most useful thing I ever learned. More useful than reading music. Because that gave me it. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's you know, improvisation. It kind of, it started then and there. You know, you, you learn the 12-bar the pattern with the left hand. And then the right hand does whatever. And it really impressed people. I think, at a, I, I seem to remember I got very good very quickly. And then kind of plateaued and stayed like that, kind of. I think that often happens. When you find something that you enjoy, like as in something specific, like a particular piece or a particular style that you're into, then you can spend a lot of time on it and get good at that thing. And then that becomes your thing. And you're like, I'm really mm. good at this. But then that sometimes stops you. That can get a bit stagnant and you stop pushing out and finding new things to do because you found your one thing that you love. Yeah. So when I finally got to high school, I think very quickly people sussed me out they were like that's sort of all he does is this kind of um, 12 bar blues kind of they called him benny the blues man i wouldn't be surprised if that if some version of that name actually happened um so yeah so i long ago stopped playing the guitar although i did kind of around my 20s i did buy an electric guitar and get into kind of pedals and things for a while but the thing is, you know, the, there were so many people who were much better at it than me and more interested, I think. Okay. Ultimately, I, I kind of just realised that, you know, stick with the synths, stick with the keyboards. Okay. Um, so, yeah, bands. Were you in many? Well, well, it's funny you should say. Um, I was doing Silver Duke of Edinburgh Awards when I was at school. So on Saturday mornings, I was a volunteer leader for the local Beavers. The Beavers are like the Cub Scouts, but kind of the younger ones. Yeah. And the the place where we did it, there was this uh, super cool rock band who used to use the community centre after us. And um, I okay. used to see them loading their amps and their mic stands into the place. And I was like, wow. And one day I plucked up the nerve to ask if I could watch them. And I went and watched them, still wearing my uh, beaver leader uniform. Um, Are they okay about that? I well, mean, did they, they, they say were, yes grudgingly? They were very cool. No, I think they they admired my youthful enthusiasm. Um, they probably, yeah, they were probably really flattered, actually. Like, oh, someone wants to watch. I mean, you probably thought that they were playing stadiums and they were probably <laughs> struggling to get a gig, thinking, oh, this kid actually wants to hear our music. Well, I think two of them were teachers, so they weren't a professional band. They were just um, just enthusiasts who did it yeah. for fun. And But they got gigs, and let me tell you, they ended up letting me join them, and I bought a keyboard so I could be in that band. My parents bought me a Korg 
X5 keyboard that was about £500. Very grateful to wow. my parents for that. That's because that enabled me into their world. And I was yeah. I was off playing gigs with this band and, you know, all adults as well. So that kind of was um, something to get used to. But, you know, I was about 14 at the time. And were you playing original music or covers? It was all covers. And um, I, I learned what it was to be a keyboard player in a covers band. And I learned lots of covers and, and you know, did, did gigs. One of my first gigs was in front of 200 German bikers at a biker festival that happened Ooh, wow. in my town. Yeah, amazing. And, you know, the thrill of, you know, for the first time playing the, playing the piano and it coming out of the big speakers. And I was like, oh, it's, yeah, very exciting. And, um, yeah, I played in lots of covers bands after that. Um, so I played in um, a, a couple of blues bands, as you might expect. I was quite adept at the blues by then. And, <laughs> I'm sure you were. Yeah, again, with adults. And I was very young. I was definitely the youngest by, like, more than 10 years. Yeah. And um, I also played in local theatre band i was actually the musical director of the local theater group band wow um so that was good useful and then um, while i was living in seoul i played in a couple of bands and one of them was an originals band called jakarta jam which had um it had um i think five nationalities in the band there was english american korean Indonesian, oh, four. <laughs> four nationalities okay. in the band. Still, that's impressive. That's more nationalities than I've ever played in a band with. In fact, um, the highest I've gone is two, which is <laughs> uh, when I played with the band Bojar's Porch Revelators and our drummer was Bulgarian. Oh, yes. Yes, I remember him. What's his name? Valeri. Valeri. He was a, an excellent drummer, really sort of steeped in... Um, a gypsy style of folk playing and you know he he would play in any kind of time signature really complex intricate patterns yeah uh, which was interesting because we were basically a like a rock band <laughs> mm. um i mean it's slightly alternative rock music um but essentially that's what we were and and then he would do these crazy uh, gypsy drum fills and and rhythms yeah and, he was very tight yeah. and he had that roland v drum set yeah, he, he had a nice drum kit. We did get told off once for plugging it into a PA and the guy was like, you can't plug that into the PA, you'll blow the speakers. Uh, I don't really believe that. <laughs> nope. Anyway. That was the band which um, fan favourite The Force, Adrian Forster, was the lead singer of. Is that right? Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, of course. Yeah, because Adrian's been on a couple of episodes and, yes. uh, and he's normally been on uh, playing percussion. But in that band, Bojar's Porch Revelators, he was the front man. He was the guitarist and lead singer. I know a few people who've told me they don't believe he was ever a lead singer, but I've seen it. <laughs> you have to be there. Yeah, he was a good one as well. Yep. Yep, he certainly is. And you used to play bass and backing vocals. That's right. Bass is my main role in that band. If you don't mind me saying, Andy, it's difficult to imagine you now standing at the back on the bass and not leading things from the front. <laughs> well, I, however you want to take that, <laughs> there's certainly pros and cons to whichever role you fill in the band, and sometimes it is nice to just 
not have the spotlight on you. Mm. But yeah, I've I've only ever played in two bands. There's there's that one, and um, that was an originals band. Covers bands. I had my first experience of last year. I'd never played in a covers band until I joined as a deputy. The Wing Walkers. Um, oh who yes. Play sort of funk soul Motown stuff, and so mainly getting the saxophone out. It's strange to hear you say that because you've played so many covers. You are like Mr. Covers. Mostly on my own, though. Yeah, Mostly just getting out of the acoustic guitar. It's strange, isn't it? Yeah, we've, we've kind of... Um, we've both come from opposite ends of the spectrum because I've done lots and lots of playing in bands. And I guess I'm kind of now edging towards doing more solo stuff and you're the, the other way around. You've started out doing solo stuff and now you're... You're finally in bands. <laughs> That's right. Although I'm not getting many gigs at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Tell me about it. Um, but yes, um, you know, I, I got to a point where I just thought I don't want to play covers anymore. I'm like, I'm all covered out. Um, yep. After years of playing in different covers bands in different countries. Um, there was what do you think is... Sorry. I just want to ask, ask a question. What song do you think you've played the most in Superstition, your life? Superstition, and I hate it. I hate Superstition. I never want to play... I never want <laughs> to play that... claim. Yeah, I never want to play the clavinet part on Superstition ever again. That's such a shame, because it's, it's, it's an awesome song, but I know what you mean. You just When you've played something that much, you just get sick of it. Yeah. makes me feel it. sorry for the bands that were famous in like the 80s, and they're still going now, but playing all their favourite songs from the 80s. You're like, how can you stand it? How can you stand to play this song for the thousandth time? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so like when, you know, people like Status Quo who are yeah, still touring. Yeah. But what do you really, do you really want to keep playing rocking all over the world? It's it, again and again and again. It's sad, isn't it? I mean, I think every artist wants to believe that their most recent material is the most relevant. Yeah. Yeah, that's not but the it, case. <laughs> It's, it is also true that if your fans love you and it's if they have built a connection with your music and they've devoted time and money to supporting your career over the years, then can you really complain about playing their favourite song when they come to see you? <laughs> nope, you can't complain. You made your bed, you've got to lie in it. No one made you be a pop star. <laughs> Exactly. I mean, you could always choose. You don't have to keep going, do you? Indeed. Right. So, yeah. So in deciding that I never wanted to play covers anymore, the kind of the, the realisation that, you know, all I want to do is just jam. At some point that occurred. The My favourite part of being in covers bands was when we would have a little improvised jam section, like to warm up or at the end. And I was like... Did you ever do that in your gigs or just in the rehearsal? No, not at gigs, just rehearsals. No, um, I've you, actually... You ever have a, never had a solo? Oh, solos, yeah. But I suppose I'm referring to free improvisation rather than kind of playing solos. And I suppose yeah. there is a differentiation to be made there. Sure. Um, I think we've both only recently discovered this term free improvisation, which is what we do. There is actually a label for the kind of thing that we do. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, as well as playing instruments, I became fascinated with music technology, I suppose, which mm. started off actually through a, a PlayStation game. 
There was a game called Music 2000, <laughs> and it was amazing back in the day. I mean, it's you know a lot of sequencing and, and looping and that kind of stuff, and the sound quality was pretty poor, as my GCSE music teacher told me when I submitted a cassette tape recording off the TV that I had played <laughs> through a PlayStation game. Um, but you could actually, you could pop the PlayStation open, take the disc out, put a CD in, and you could sample from a cd and then put the game disc back in and manipulate your sample on, on this playstation game it was amazing so sophisticated um, what was that like circa 2000 um yeah well, the game was called music 2000 oh. <laughs> so it, it must have been yeah um i think that was a re-release and then there was ej um and then eventually uh discovered ableton live and never looked back <laughs> Yeah, well, I I also at some point played with some kind of PC software where you're able to arrange loops and drag and drop and make tracks and um, layer different loops together. And then, of course, I moved on to, I got a MacBook, a white MacBook, and oh, yeah. it had GarageBand, and that changed everything. Because GarageBand, oh, wow. it just enabled this kind of um, it was an all-in-one machine. It had like a microphone built in and you could use the typing keyboard as a musical keyboard. Not very, you know, not brilliantly. But uh, yeah, it had it had amazing sounds for the time and it had the ability to produce entire songs. And yeah, mm. and I, I made these awful songs. <laughs> but that <laughs> eventually, um, I did go through a Fruity Loops phase as well, but that was very limited okay. at the time. I had a version of that. And yeah, eventually I saved up all my money and bought Ableton Live. And yeah, um, there's no reason to use anything else. People often fall into one door, digital audio workstation, and then once you've got to know it and you're comfortable using it, it's very hard to switch over to another. Yeah. So I think most people just carry on using the, the first one that they really got into. <laughs> like your first bank account. So... um. Some people listening might be familiar with the podcast. Some people might not. Alki Benedict came from you as your idea. So, I mean, what is it? What, in essence, is Alki about? And how did you come up with it? Well, so the idea of Alki didn't occur overnight. It's the end of a long chain of ideas, which have kind of evolved over many years. Back when I was living in South Korea... I joined a meetup group, that's meetup.com, the website, um, for a thing called the Soul Creative Musician Circle. And I remember going to this thing. It was um, organised by a, um, a girl who put on this event at the cafe down the street from her house, which was very difficult to get to. And I remember we, about four of us, met up with our instruments and... She hadn't, like, told the cafe that we were doing this, and we just kind of sat outside. They didn't turn the music what? down for us or anything. You it, just turned up, and they were like, yeah. whoa, a bunch of musicians yeah. are here. Yeah, well, you know, we um, Seoul is a pretty cool place, and we got our instruments out, and nobody, you know, threw us onto the street or anything. But we, um, it was basically the worst organised thing I'd ever been to. And I thought, this is a shame, because we've got this group of people who are kind of into this. And I I think I said to the organiser, um, do you mind if I have it? I said, you know, can I help you to organise it? Do you mind if I organise some events? 
And I did. And I organised a succession of increasingly well-attended meetups for music improvisation. And I think my, my last one that I did had about 50 people came over the course of the day. And the problem with Seoul, with um, teaching English as a foreign language in Seoul, is people usually come for about a year and then they go. And the okay. problem is that people don't really commit to anything. So it was difficult to kind of get the same people to come back. And it was yeah. difficult to kind of get any real momentum. But the idea was there. And when I came to Shrewsbury and I met you and I realised, you know, um, we we jammed together very well. I thought. I thought the we've done various bits, haven't we? We've done um, performances at open mic nights together. We've done some jazz music performances. We've we played in that. Oh yes, we we did that garden party jazz thing. Yeah, that was cool. brilliant. Um, so the logical thing to do was let's try and set up the Shrewsbury Creative Musician Circle. The very same kind of format that we did in Seoul, but with local musicians. What could go wrong, Andy? Uh, it's foolproof, <laughs> surely. <laughs> well, the the problem was that we just couldn't get the people because Shrewsbury has the worst music scene on the face of the universe and we couldn't even muster up enough people to attend a group to keep it alive and it kind of died off. Um, but the idea was there. The idea of doing some kind of group improvisation activity. Well, yeah, so I was there. I think, what were there, three? Three events? Yeah, we only did three. And, yeah, it was hard drumming people up. In fact, some people travelled quite far to be there. Mm. And then we ended up with such a mixed bag. I remember there being someone who only knew three chords on the guitar mm. and then was very reluctant to join in, even when we did a, a jam that had those three chords <laughs> in it. We had one of those guys who was a phenomenal guitarist, but who just wanted to play rock solos over everything. Noodle over everything, yes. All the time. Uh, we had um, <laughs> we had a, um, a bass player who said, oh my God. I had to... <laughs> He said, um, my last band finished because I had anger issues and I've come here looking to see if anyone else wants to start a band, uh. <laughs> <And> <laughs> which I don't think anyone took him up on that. Um, he played his bass so loud and it was like, you know, he, he was just reveling in the opportunity to make as much noise as possible, drown everyone out. And it really wasn't he, that kind of a wasn't that kind of a, a musical group i think when you told him to turn it down he stormed out he yeah he um he revealed quite a lot about himself that day i i switched into teacher mode and i admonished him in front of everyone which perhaps was um unwise but i wasn't expecting him to storm out petulantly like a child and that kind of finished off the group really because i didn't really want to I didn't see a way that I could keep it going without kind of blatantly not involving him. When you get musicians together, the the, the sort of personality factor, yeah, is no, I just as much as important as the musicianship. The, the the problem is that you you become like an exposed nerve when you're playing your heart out. You you kind of you make yourself very vulnerable. So if somebody criticizes you whilst you're in that state it can be especially damaging and you can react disproportionately. Wow, yeah, that's so true. And just like you were saying earlier, music 
allows you to express those things mm. and it you know it is it is a powerful connecting thing and and yeah i think you're right there's an element of vulnerability mm. in yeah and uh, it can praying, be heartbreaking <laughs> when somebody you know um slaps you down like that so yeah whoops but no you were you were right to say <laughs> that's too loud you need to turn it down because he was spoiling it for everyone else yes yes um so from the from the failure of the Shrewsbury Creative Musicians Circle, it was still a while before the podcast idea. So came right, about. yes. So at some point, oh, it was I played in a band with John Bannister and Emma Linney. Um, John Bannister obviously has been on the podcast twice now, and it was a decision that I just didn't want to play in bands anymore. Not that band in particular, but I didn't like learning songs, performing songs, practicing the songs every week. I realised mm-hmm. that's a kind of a, a routine that I no longer found satisfying and all I want to do is jam. So I left I left them in the lurch, um, not not on a gig night, just um, I eventually, I think I was also very busy with teaching and I couldn't fit it all in and I was exhausted. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I eventually left them and I was casting around looking for what am I going to do? Because when you're a musician, you want to make music. You don't necessarily want to make a career out of it. You want to make music for its own sake. Well, some people Just... manage to do both, and that's not a bad thing. No, that's that's a fine thing. As they say, um, if you find a job that you love, you never have to do a day's work in your life. <laughs> I remember very distinctly, it was um, a vinyl music night at a Japanese restaurant in Shrewsbury, I think it was called um, Itadekizen. <laughs> That's the one. Okay, I've never been there since, but that was where we both went out one night and I pitched you the idea for this YouTube channel that I wanted to start. Oh, yeah. That's right. It was YouTube idea, yeah. Yeah, so it was the idea that we have these improvised jams and that, that was before the, the gamification part before it was gamified. I did a lot of research into the gamification of education. Yeah. And I was kind of coming across all of these interesting kind of psychological things and ways to improve engagement and productivity through game mechanics. And once you know what it is, you start recognising it everywhere. It's all over the place. Gamification ought to be a very well-known word, and it isn't. Do you know what? I came across the concept of gamification at a Youth for Christ staff conference where one of the national staff was talking about fundraising and he he, he did basically a fundraising game. He raised a load of money for his charity by uh, employing gamification techniques. Wow. That was before... Uh, well, it was a long time ago, definitely before I'd heard about it from you. Anyway, so we talked about this idea for about a year and it was very, I realised it was going to be very complex to stage this whole thing to because we'd need, you know, filming. That's before you started YouTubing, Andy. So um, yeah. I don't think either of us had much experience with the technology that we'd need and I wanted it to have multiple cameras and I wanted it to have these kind of split screen ideas so that we could see multiple people doing things at the same time and responding to mm-hmm. things at the same time. And you suggested, why not do it as a podcast? And thank goodness that you did. I mean, I'm surprised I... 
it hadn't occurred to me. I've always been a massive fan of podcasts. Back from the, the early Ricky Gervais shows and the Adam and Joe show, the Mark Kermode film review podcast, the Yogscast, um, all the Guardian podcasts, in particular the technology show Chips with Everything, yeah, and the wonderful Sonic State podcast with Nick Bat, um, uh, Stuff You Should Know, um, the Radio 4's Moral Maze and the Infinite Monkey Cage. I mean, uh, there are so many podcasts that I've been listening to for years. Um, what do you listen to, Andy? Me? I mean, I am not into podcasts at all. Not that I've got anything against them, but I find when I am when I'm when I want something to put on to listen to, it's always music. I'm not really a, a speech radio or, or a podcast um, kind of guy, <laughs> although I am now. It's a, <laughs> I think it's I think actually... I, it's taken producing a podcast to get me to like <laughs> podcasts in the same way that I was never into EDM, um, you know, electronic music. I would I would never listen to it until you started making it. Uh, yes, exactly. I started making electronic music because uh, it was just it was fun to make it. And then making it got me interested in in listening to it. And I think it's exactly the same with podcasts. It's not it's never been something I've been particularly motivated to do. But now that I produce one i've started listening to some so the other day i was listening to um zach braff and donald Faison doing oh, their yes. scrubs rewatch podcast <laughs> uh, because i used to love scrubs and so that was a bit of a uh, nostalgia hearing them them talking about it mm. um yeah so we then spent about a year talking about making this podcast and we finally got round to meeting up, setting up the gear. We originally started recording it on your laptop because you've got an audio interface with about 12 inputs. And um, we did about three pilot episodes <laughs> because I think I kept on saying, well, it was good, but can we make that the pilot? And then yeah. um, we did another one. And I was like, oh, well, that's it's good. And then I think the very first episode that we did, I was like, well, can we call that episode zero? And it can be like an unofficial pilot. And you were like, no, we've got to do... We're never going to do this. And... Um, yeah. Yes. It's a good job that, that you did. I think if left to my own devices, I'd never have actually released anything. As is possibly evident by the fact that I've had this album that I've not been releasing for about the last five, six years now. So, Andy, how would you describe what we actually do on the podcast? Wow. So, we... Well... We call it gamified improvised music, um, but probably when we're doing it, we we use the word jam more, don't we? We say we're we're jamming. We're going to do a jam. So what is a jam? A a jamming session can be just musicians playing together, but when we talk <laughs> about a jam or a jamming session, yes. we're talking about playing improvised music together. I'm going to just Google what jam actually means. Yep. Well, according to Wikipedia, a jam session is a relatively informal musical event, process or activity where musicians, typically instrumentalists, play improvised solos, vamp on tunes, songs and chord progressions. Both styles can be used simply as a social gathering. Does that ring true to you? Wow, that, yeah, that's a good definition. I like that. Very good. Shall we see what Wikipedia says about improvisation? I don't think we need to, do we? Improvisation is fairly obvious. So we're talking about improvisation. 
so that that definition of jams mentioned improvisation, which is what we see as a the key feature, really. And improvisation is just you're you're making it up as you go along. So it's usually a tradition in rock and jazz and lots of styles where you would have an improvised section or a solo or a melody line. Um, but what we do is more than that, because we play free improvisation, which means absolutely no part of the song whatsoever has been prepared beforehand. It's completely off the top of our heads. Although that's that's debatable. Oh, for goodness sake. <laughs> because you're, you're right, it is. It, there's, we haven't consciously prepared beforehand what yeah, we're going to play, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's impossible to actually play something without referring to things that you do already know. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. For instance, if if you worked out that the 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 jam is being played in a certain key, let's say E minor, then and you know the E minor scale, then you use that scale. You're not making up a scale. You're taking a scale that you know, but you're making up the melody. So you're drawing on a pre-existing toolkit of tricks, ideas, knowledge of intervals, um, prepared phrases. Yeah, it's like it's almost like Lego, I guess. <laughs> there are there are prefabricated ideas which you have stored in some sort of dusty storage container in your brain, and mm. and so you're accessing them. And but as well as having the different components. You also, your brain also has an intuition about how they should go together. And you're accessing that intuition as you play. So that's a very good analogy there, Andy. And I think one of the reasons why I like to include the, um, the, the weird Desert Island Discs section is because I want the audience to have an insight into what we have been listening to. And it makes it more interesting to hear what we then play because there's the the potential to hear the influence in what we play yeah that's really interesting it's um i guess sometimes we like to think that uh, all of the ideas are just coming from us you know just pure it's just me having an idea but the reality is that the ideas are coming usually have come from outside of us there's something we've heard from somewhere else and we're influenced and then we're just sort of processing and regurgitating <laughs> so when we you mm. know are we really being there's no is there any such thing as an original idea well i think people don't necessarily want an original idea they want an interesting idea and i think that through the mechanisms and the processes that we go to great lengths to implement to influence our jams they don't guarantee that we will produce something original, but they uh, they certainly help it along the way. Yeah. To encourage combinations of sounds that wouldn't necessarily happen together. Yeah, because by nature, even though we're trying, I guess, to be a bit experimental, you still sometimes need a bit of a kick to actually get outside of the box of what you're used to. Yeah, I think we are experimenting rather than trying to be experimental, but... How would you describe the music that we play on the Alki podcast? Oh, that's, I mean, it's really hard to do because it doesn't fall into any one genre. It's, you know, it's a cross genre. So I think you'd have to call it something like jam music or, you know. Uh, jam music, yeah. I think that is a genre in and of itself. I think that you can hear 
when when I've listened to and watched YouTube videos of you know just jams jam videos you know somebody's turned the camera on while a band has been jamming you can you can hear the the distinctive choices that people make when they're jamming and there's a Beatles um track or probably a whole album or something of kind of outtakes in the studio where they're jamming and it's amazing you can just hear the the kind of the jam music kind of coming through you know people sort of noodling sort of feeling their way yes and you know i think it's completely universal i've jammed with people around the world and yeah it's it's a kind of a universal thing and there's something so delicious about it because you know that there's an element of risk there you know that there are there's yeah. a chance that something could go wrong that's the i guess the the sense of adventure that you get in jamming um mm. that and sometimes that comes sometimes you actually hear something and you're like i'm not did they intend to do that or not and there's a bit of like mystery <laughs> in it when you're listening to it um but then you also get such a sense of satisfaction when it really works when it really comes together because yeah, yeah. you know you actually did that under pressure and it could have gone wrong mm. but you didn't you nailed it and you know those moments i think uh, any musician who has um has done a lot of jamming really you know can relate to that feeling almost euphoria when you're <laughs> playing with other people and, and you just get a moment which is is golden which no one's planned it or composed it it's just happened in real mm. time I also get that when I'm just playing piano just on my own. I come across moments and I'm like, oh, that's good. <laughs> yes. Plenty of moments where it sounds bad. But, you know, this might be a good time to talk about what our favourite jams are from the previous 11 episodes. Yeah. Do you have a particular favourite standout jam? I do. I mean, it's not an easy choice mm. because there's so much variety and there's different things I love about different jams. There's, there's somewhere I really like the texture somewhere i i have fond memories of the experience of jamming but my mm. favorite one uh going back would be i think it was episode five and our guests were sam franks on the trombone and uh jonathan bannister playing bass uh and we did a rotary jam which is the one where uh the the musicians playing at one time uh changes we, we you move around the circle coming in and out and we had a rotary jam where we also changed instruments. So oh, yes. over the course of the jam, I love how it evolved. And I and we finished. And I think, well, there was a point towards the end where all of us were playing percussion instruments. Sam was playing a yeah. bicycle bell. And I think I ended up on the drum kit. And, yeah. Yeah. you know, it, that one was, it was a real ride. You know, it, it was so much fun. And it's fun to listen mm, to. It was a well. long one, that one. It's about seven minutes long, I seem to remember. Yeah. Wow. Yes, so that's been my favourite. What about you? So, yeah, so I think probably one of my favourite jams is the first jam that we did, I think it was episode seven, which had Andrew Farrow and The Force. And it was a three-note jam, which um, started on the trumpet. And it just kind of, it sounded, in my opinion, like a rehearsed piece. It kind of, it just sounded incredibly tight and it was mostly you and Andrew, you playing the saxophone and him playing the trumpet. You mm. just kept on doing things at the same time that just sounded brilliant. It sounded so choreographed and it obviously wasn't. And it was just really tight and fun and it had loads of sections. I like sections. 
I think the worst thing in a jam is when people just repeat the same thing over and over. Yeah. Um, which um, obviously you've got to repeat some things mm-hmm. just to give structure, but you know when 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 it never drives forward is the worst thing, and that's that's a jam which seemed to kind of constantly evolve all the way through. Um, so yeah, brilliant. I, I'd love to do more jams like that. I guess you could say that had several of those the moments we were talking about. Moments, yeah. That's you. You could say that's the currency we deal in. But um, so the other element to Alki, it's improvised. It's also gamified. What does what does gamification add to improvising? Yes, well, there were lots of ideas that have kind of converged on the kind of the gamification outcome. It was a an attempt to wrap free improvisation up in as much context as possible. So the kind of the decisions seem less arbitrary and more meaningful to the listener. So they know what they're listening to. They know what the what the restrictions and the elements of chance are. Yeah. I think having the idea of games in improvisation isn't anything new. Obviously, kind of in theatre, they have improv and stand up comedy has improv. Okay. Improvisation is music. Improv is theatre. But uh, yes, obviously, things like Whose Line Is It Anyway have been doing improv games for, you know, years and years. And one thing that I always noticed that when you and I were jamming, when we'd meet up specifically just to jam, not to rehearse for a performance, but just for the fun of jamming, the first stumbling block we'd come across would be, so how are we going to start off? How are we, how are we beginning? Who's going first? Yeah. <laughs> you go first. I can't think of anything. Okay. It's like when you've got so many options, you have a thing called decision paralysis, where it's like you've got too many choices. And so I guess... Part of the game's aspect was the jumping off points. It's a way to start off the jam. It gets the ball rolling and the rest of the jam just flows from there. Yeah. And that's proved to be a very useful ingredient for creativity in general. Um, Limit your options. Mm. (laughs) And, you know, it doesn't dictate any style and it doesn't, you know, um, suggest a genre. But those things kind of flow. They, They are suggested for you by the random notes or the the random snippet or the particular piece of sound design that we're faced with. Yeah. Did you know, did I tell you this, that a while ago, um, the original title for the podcast, I wanted to call it Extemporization for Four Players. Yeah. Did I tell you yeah, that? Yeah, I think I remember that being suggested. Yeah, so so on the logo, the 4-4 could be like the time signature on manuscript sheet music yeah i'm glad we didn't end up with that as the name although we should probably say where we did get the name from so yeah you you're probably wondering where we actually got this word alki from what it's got to do with anything because we've racked our brains i think we we were trying to think of a name for this and we probably had about pages and pages of ideas so many different ones such lame ideas Uh, you know i was thinking of different um uh, you know, acronyms of things that we yeah. could we could call it, and or exciting words, or making up, sticking two words together, and all that kind of stuff. In the end, it was I seem to remember 
I think we'd we'd stepped out for lunch and um, our friend David Lloyd was with us and he just came out with, why not call it Alki? It means open in Finnish. Because he was living in Finland at the time. So, yeah, and that was a kind of a, a Damascus moment. We were both like, yes, perfect. And that's like suddenly all the all the problems were solved. Everything was going to be all right. Because I think up to that point, there were names that I'd liked that you weren't happy with. There might have been names that you liked that I wasn't happy with. <laughs> but it, it, was, it was like this miracle where Dave said, how about Alki? And we were both like, yeah, that's that's great. Yes, it's a, a kind of a fun word. But the idea of openness is mm. that's what free improvisation is about. It's about opening up uh, the possibilities musically, uh, being open both as a performer and I guess you have to be open as a listener as well. And in fact, the word open is incorporated into our logo. If you look at the, the logo that looks kind of like a, a kind of a hand-painted tribal tattoo perhaps it wasn't intended to look like that but um, it's actually an isometric illustration of a box with an open lid and then some of the lines removed Mm. so next time you listen to the Alki podcast see if you can recognize that image in the logo concludes this special edition episode of Alki, the gamified music improvisation podcast recorded right here in Shrewsbury, UK. Why not subscribe to the Alki podcast on Apple, Spotify or Google Podcasts? You can follow the Alki podcast on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. Check out the Alki website at alki.uk. If you'd like to get in touch, or perhaps you'd like us to use one of your songs in our Snippets Jam, email contact at alki.uk. I'm Andy. I'm Benedict. Good night. <laughs>